Hello, everyone. Anna covered a bit there. I'm Carey. We've done that. Um, and it is great to be with you. So, as Anna said, I've been at KXE for about eight years now, um, but they've never let me hold my own mic before. So, <laughs> this is kind of a big deal for me. Uh, you know, when you go, you give a prophetic word and they like really grip onto it in case you're going to go rogue. Well, today is a free for all. Um, so I'm going to be talking on new beginnings today, and I know what you're thinking, original, it's January, um, but bear with me, you'll see how it goes. And I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to take you back to the end of 2015. So I had been dating Tommy, my now husband, for about six months, um, and I was going to visit his parents for the first time, big moment. Uh, I, actually, I actually knew, it was a bit cheating, because I knew his parents a bit already. I went to uni in the city that um, Tommy grew up in. Side note, he actually, we met then, and he doesn't remember, so <laughs> uh, that's a counselling session in the future, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but I was friends with his sisters, Kate's up there somewhere, um, I've been to his house for parties before, you know, I wasn't totally stepping into the unknown, but, uh, you know, I was still pretty, pretty nervous, it felt like a big moment. And I remember, you know, we drove up to his house, and I'm getting, you know, the anxiety, the tummy, the butterflies. Um, and, uh, you know, but I'd like to think, I'll make a good first impression. Anna just said, I'm good with parents. And I thought, you know, initially things seemed to be going all right. And then a couple of days in, I started to feel a bit uncomfortable in the bowel region. And um, I, <laughs> I realised I hadn't gone for a number two yet. And I, you know, I didn't think too much of it, because I thought, Do you know what, you know, Science, isn't it? You know, what comes in must come out. It'll be fine. And, um, you know, basic biology. It's only a matter of time. But then day two rolled into day three. Day four. By day five, <laughs> things were starting very, very uncomfortable. Um, and I was eating, you know, I was eating three meals a day plus snacks. But, like, nothing, nothing was shifting. Um, and I remember, I remember texting Anna about it. And... <laughs> And we like to share, overshare, some would say. And um, she was like, Carrie, this is classic. This is anxiety. This is anxiety masquerading as constipation. You know, she sent lots of encouraging poo emojis. It didn't, it didn't help, weirdly. And it got to the point where I had to tell Tom, and I think he remembers this. I had to tell Tom because I was so bloated I couldn't do any of my trousers up. And then, classic, word got around his family. And it's, his, his mum started like slipping me dried apricots and it was like she was like oh to get things moving it was I mean I wanted to die it was horrific but <laughs> you'll be pleased to know the situation rectified itself somewhere around day six um three years into marriage I can use the toilet very freely at my in-law's house which is positive um but my point somewhat tangentially is that new beginnings can definitely bring anxiety uh, I said it was tangential <laughs> You've got to open with a poo story if you've got one. Um, anyway, you see, so I feel like there are two camps of people, right, when it comes to new beginnings. There are those people, they get really excited, right? We all know them. They get that fresh start feeling. They're buzzing for new opportunities, for what might be around the corner. And then there are those people, guess which one I am, who get a bit more anxious. You know, uh, instead of opportunity, they see a blank void. They feel unsettled. There's a fear of the unknown there. You know, they might get constipated. Who knows? Maybe that's just me. Um, and both, I think, can probably be fair reactions. But especially in light of all that's happened over the last couple of years, I just wonder how many of us are feeling some of that anxiety going into the next year. Things probably don't look like most of us hoped by now, right? You know, our family, like lots of others, uh, just spent Christmas in isolation after catching COVID. Lots of us are working from home again. It feels like we're constantly waiting to hear if there's going to be another round of restrictions. And it just kind of feels like there's a very 2020 vibe about the whole thing. 
you know, and it's been said a lot over the past couple of years, but we've been experiencing both a collective and a personal grief. Both the loss of loved ones, friends and family, but also life as it was before. And I know that many people in the KXC family have suffered hugely, and we can't underestimate the impact of that. But still, I think the new year offers a moment to pause, to reflect on and maybe even modify how we, mod how we approach our circumstances. How do we let go of the fear that has arisen over the past couple of years and embrace a new level of faith and expectancy instead? You know, I've never actually been one for resolutions. I've had one, a whole one, for the past, same one, for the past four years. You know those packet of herbs that you buy in the supermarket, like your basil, your coriander, you know, the, you know the vibe. Every year, I say I'm gonna freeze them instead of letting them die before I have a chance to use them. But every year, I remember we don't have a freezer. So <laughs> you can imagine how well that one's going. But what I, am, what I am going to suggest, not resolutions, is that we look at three steps or rhythms that we can introduce that will help transform us inwardly, draw us closer to Jesus, and live more closely in step with him. And they come in three little handy steps. So number one is look in. Remind ourselves of who God says we are. Then we look out. We live with our arms wide open. And we look up. We fix our eyes on Jesus. So I'll start with look in. And when I say this, I don't mean some kind of introspective, navel-gazing attempt to find some kind of inner peace or self-truth. What I mean is a decision to unearth a fresh revelation of who you are and who God says, who, you, who God calls you to be. You know, and I can... Um, all right. uh, oh, yeah, I don't know how many of you have seen The Tourist. Um, it's a new BBC drama. Uh, you can catch the whole thing on iPlayer. We love a Sunday night drama in our house. Um, and I won't give too much away, but it opens with a car crash. And a man, played by Jamie Dornan, loses his memory. And then he spends the next six episodes trying to figure out who he is. You know, eventually he figures out his name, but that doesn't really tell him much. He relies on people who knew him in the past to tell him things about himself, but, spoiler alert, they turn out to be largely unreliable, and he doesn't get very far in terms of self-discovery with them either. And I won't spoil the ending completely because it's, it is worth a watch, but it's a really interesting portrayal of trying to figure out, like someone trying to figure out who they are, you know, and what defines them. You know, I could tell you a few things about myself right now. Anna did give me a little bio, but I'll go a bit further. My name's Mary, obviously. Uh, I'm 30, my birthday's in June. I'm married to Tom, I'm a mum. Adrian Charles once referred to me as yet another underdressed Christian woman. Um, and I really like peas. But none of that actually tells you much about me, does it? You know, I doubt you feel as though you know me particularly well just from that. But the truest thing about me, about all of us, is that I'm loved. We are loved by God. We are created to demonstrate his glory. You know, it's right there at the start of the Bible, right on the very first page. It says in Genesis 1, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And the repetition here basically means we have to pay close attention. We are created to reflect the glory of the one who made us. And in Genesis 2, it, then it gets more specific. It says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, this story of God breathing life into Adam and Eve, it would have landed really specifically with its original Jewish audience, probably in a different way than it does to most of us today. You see, there was this ritual in ancient Mesopotamia. 
And it stemmed from the belief that a statue was the real presence of the god it represented. And so during the ceremony, items would be placed in the temple, the last of which would be the idol itself. It would be placed at the very center, its mouth opened, and water poured in to represent that idol being breathed into life. <laughs> this ceremony would have been at the forefront of the mind of those who heard the creation story in the ancient Jewish culture. So as God builds his temple, the earth, he places his final piece, Adam and Eve, at the center. And to a Jewish audience, this would have been evidence that we are made in God's image. We're designed for holiness. God breathed his life into each and every one of us. And we probably hear that a lot, right? But if you stop and you think about it, it is mind-blowing. And I actually remember when I understood something of this for the first time. My old church holds a course called Detox. And it's basically a chance to delve deeper into the truths of the Bible and learn to live them out. In the beginning of this course, we got given a postcard, and it had a bunch of stuff written on it, all different things from the Bible um, about what God says of us. Um, and we read them all out together. That was kind of a little exercise that we did. We read them all out. They said things like, I am set apart, chosen by God. I am free. I am a daughter or a son of the creator. And we were asked to choose one or two of them that stood out to us right at the start of the course, either because we didn't believe them or, and we wanted to, um, or something that we just wanted to kind of grasp a little bit better. And for me, I chose, I am made new. I just didn't believe, I just didn't believe it basically. I didn't believe that God would truly look past all my sins and all my failures. You know, I called myself a Christian. I believed in redemption. I believed in Jesus. I believe he paid for my sins. But I didn't believe that God no longer saw them. I thought that they defined me. And I remember really clearly being asked what I thought God felt when he looked at me. And my first thought was disappointed. And I wish I could describe a light bulb moment when this kind of abounding love for me became amazingly clear. But I actually have the worst memory in the entire world. And if there was an epiphany, I do not remember it. But I do know that during the course, I do remember kind of developing this fresh understanding of it. How God calls me by name. How he's not disappointed in me, but he's proud and that is true of every single one of us. And it's a game changer, you know, when we see ourselves as God sees us, we become aware of our potential and we start to live more freely. In John 14, Jesus said that whoever believes in him would do greater things than he during his ministry. And with that truth under our belt, we can step into the new year confident that we've been anointed by God to be his hands and his feet. Which brings me on to number two, but I'm just going to have some water. Very dry mouth. Anyone else? Just me. Okay, so the second one is look out. And there's a classic moment in the Gospels, and it's actually told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Jesus gets asked, which of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, is the most important? And he responds like this. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I mean, it's pretty, pretty black and white, isn't it? Jesus can be more clear. Loving other people is a mark of the Christian faith. Living with arms wide open, welcoming the last, the least, and the lost, is not optional for those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. So this second rhythm is looking outwards, which I think starts with seeing others as God sees them, recognizing their intrinsic value and treating them in a way that reflects it. 
I'm sure many in the room will remember the heartbreaking death of Alan Kurdi, the three-year-old Kurdish boy who tragically downed, drowned while trying to cross the Mediterranean with his mum and his five-year-old brother in September 2015. The devastating image of his lifeless body washed up on a Turkish beach, made front pages everywhere. But it also resulted in a sea change in popular opinion regarding refugees. You know, immediately, kind of in the week following that image, NGOs reported an uptick in donations, like a significant increase in people like parting with their cash. Google searches for Syria and refugees went massive. Even The Sun, the newspaper, which had previously referred to migrants as cockroaches, it started a fundraising campaign. You know, it, this, this picture of Alan, it humanized a crisis that for many people seemed really distant. And it's horrific that it took, to, took such a tragic situation for many to recognize this, but I think, I think it highlighted something of a deep truth that's actually built into our very beings. That each of us has an intrinsic value and deserving of love, safety, and dignity. So how do we implement looking outwards into our daily lives? After God breathed his life into Adam and Eve, that verse we read earlier, revealing that each one of us is made in his image, created to flourish and to be in relationship with him, things start to go wrong. I mean, there's no surprise there. We see throughout Genesis that mankind finds this concept a pretty tough one to grasp. We see inequality marked out through the actions of individuals, families, communities, even civilizations. So then God calls out Abraham as the one to usher in his kingdom by pursuing righteousness and justice. In Genesis 18:19, it says, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And then the message version puts it like this. I've settled on him, Abraham, as the one to train his children and future family to observe God's way of life, live kindly, generously, and fairly. And one image of what it looks like to look out, living in the way that God calls us to, extending kindness, generosity, hospitality to those around us. Not just those who look like, think like, act like us, but those people we find difficult, annoying, the ones we would, if we're honest, rather avoid. But as Christians, I just don't think we're given that option. We're told to live with open arms. That's the challenge we're given. And I think it starts with hospitality. You know, the heart of the gospel is rooted in hospitality. God sending his son to die, to restore our relationship with him and make a way for us to be part of his kingdom, to feast at his table. By opening our homes, if we're in a position to, or finding ways to welcome other people into our everyday lives, we imitate Jesus. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to living out community in this way as not an ideal, but a divine reality. It might be messy, it's probably going to be uncomfortable, but that's what makes it beautiful. And I wish I could regale you with stories of how I live this out well myself, but the honest truth is, is I don't. You know, I actually remember my mum inviting this older guy to Christmas one year, um, I think I was about 18, and this guy had nowhere to go, and to be honest, I thought it was clear why. Um, he spent, I'm a horrible person, he spent a, far, a fair part of the day describing the shipping forecast in excruciating detail, being generally unbelievably boring um, and a bit of a nuisance. <laughs> I told you I was horrible. Um, you know, and I was miffed, little 18-year-old me, I was miffed that we had to work our day around him. 
We couldn't do the things we normally do on Christmas because it'd be awkward. You know, we couldn't open our presents because he didn't have as many. Um, and it was all just a bit, you know, inconvenient to me. But my parents, who are far better humans than me, knew that extending hospitality can be difficult. It can be uncomfortable, but it is all the more beautiful for it. Rachel Held Evans wrote in her book, Searching for Sunday, this is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry, because they said yes, and there's always room for more. So if we want to bring God's kingdom to earth and point people to Jesus, that's what our own tables need to look like. We need to observe God's way of life, living kindly, generously, and fairly. So we've come to number three, look up, fixing our eyes on Jesus. If we go back to the Genesis story, in chapter three, we reach the low point. My Bible refers to it as the crafty snake, which I quite like. So Adam and Eve have until now been enjoying this intimate, beautiful relationship with God. You know, they've been pottering about, naked and unashamed, having a lovely time. And then they get distracted, right? They, eat, they choose to eat fruit from a tree that God has expressly forbade them from picking from. And immediately, this perfect relationship is just shattered. Adam and Eve suddenly realize that they're naked. They hide themselves from God, no longer wanting to be exposed in front of him. And it's the first recorded instance of shame in the human story. God's perfect plan for humanity is thrown off course. You know, and, and that's the danger, I think, of forgetting to look up. When we get distracted, when we choose to invest more in other places than our relationship with God, we find ourselves out of step with his perfect plan. You know, we're made for this relationship. When he breathed his life into us, he intended for our every breath to be filled with his spirit. Here comes my Pete Hughes moment. Couldn't resist. The Hebrew word, thank you. <laughs> used, used, I'm going to butcher it. Used for breath in this context is ruach. Thank you, which which is also used to mean, so it means uh, breath, sorry, so it's, but it's also used to mean life, spirit, and wind in different parts throughout the Old Testament. And the first time it's used is in the very first verse of the Bible. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit, Ruach, of God was hovering over the waters. Then that same word is used when God breathes his life into mankind. You know, there's a spiritual significance to our breath, to our breathing today, to that breath that he breathed into Adam and Eve. It's more than a simple in and out that we do without thinking. It connects us to our divine life source. He is present in every inhale and in every exhale. When we choose to make looking up to God, making space to meet with him a daily practice, we reconnect with him in a way that we were designed for. Hebrews 13 says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Which makes it sound pretty simple, right? It's like, just fix your eyes on Jesus, guys. Job done. But in some ways, I kind of reckon this actually is the straightforward one. There are practical, uncomplicated steps we can take to set us on the right path to keeping our focus on God and following the way of Jesus. 
You know, and I'll start by saying, honestly, I found this talk really difficult to write, and especially this bit. I gave birth to a beautiful little boy last year, Remy Mac. He's down here, oh, rolling around on the floor. Um, he's 10 months old now. You know, I had these visions of maternity leave, being time to, you know, rest in God's presence, read my Bible during nap time, uh, and become this generally this kind of wonderful, ethereal, spirit-filled mother. <laughs> the reality, you might have realized by now, has not quite hit the mark. It's actually been a really hard year for me in terms of faith. You know, that my son arrives safely and well is a literal miracle, which is a story for another time. But I've never felt sure of, so sure of God's goodness than when I look at him. But he's also carnage. <laughs> and I found it very difficult, you know, to stoke the embers of my faith over the past year. But I wonder how many of you can relate. You know, we've all got our stuff. Whether it's family, friends, a relationship work. We've all got stuff competing for our time, for our attention. So how do we persevere in living in a way that will see us drawing closer to Jesus and becoming more like him? Which is where I come in with a plug. So KXC, at KXC, we're encouraged to join a pattern. It means getting together in groups of three or four to encourage each other in living out our faith by following simple patterns or rhythms uh, that help us to become with Jesus Sorry, be with Jesus, I really should know this. Be with Jesus, become like him, and do the things he did. Thanks. You know, essentially committing to ways to look up each day. <laughs> hey, Rams. So this can look like all sorts of things. You know, you've got your classics, you've got your Bible study, you've got your memorizing scripture, you're practicing the Sabbath, that kind of thing. You know, bread was mentioned earlier during the notices. That's a really accessible way to start reading the Bible every single day. Then there are ways to pursue generosity, simplicity, thanksgiving, or step out and praying for healing or practicing the gift of prophecy. You know, I've named a few there, but honestly, I've not even scratched the surface. Because it's so easy, right, to fall into unhealthy practices. I don't know how many of you can relate, but over the past couple of years, we have fallen into a really unhealthy habit of watching telly every single night. Uh, you know, a combination of the pandemic, a new baby. We've kind of been at home a whole lot more than we're used to being, as most people have. And we just sort of slid into this rhythm without even really meaning to. But even this week, you know, I've been sitting down to think about this talk, the first time I've engaged my brain in a year, <laughs> in the evenings. And Tom is a lot more disciplined than me anyway, so he's been reading instead of, you know, blindly reaching for the remote. And it has been so refreshing. I think it can be really helpful to be deliberate in naming a few rhythms we want to practice sharing them with a couple of close friends, encouraging each other along the way. That accountability is really helpful, and daily practices can make a massive, massive difference in our walk with God. Everything flows from this as well, right? So we're reminded of who God says that we are, and encouraged to open up our lives to others when we look to Jesus first. We can't do any of that without first drawing close to him. So if you're not yet in a pattern, I'd really recommend it as a simple way to not only build community, but by faithfully committing to these practices, we're more present to Jesus, and we invite the Holy Spirit to do his work in us every single day. I've been one um, in, in a pattern with a couple of friends for almost six years now. Shout out to Lauren in the second row. Um, and, you know, we've seen each other through a lot in that time. And I'll be honest, there are times when we have instilled <laughs> these practices slightly more successfully than others, but I can say it's been consistently, it's consistently played a huge role in encouraging me in my faith and in helping me to pursue Jesus. And the thing with this is that it's pretty straightforward, right? But there aren't any shortcuts. If we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, keep God at the center, it takes effort. 
It's like any relationship. If we want to get to know someone well, we have to put the time in. We live on the fourth floor of a building, and there are 67 steps up to our front door, to be exact. And I can tell immediately when Tom is in the building, right from when you hear the bottom door slam. See, the bo- he's not light on his feet, bless him, um, which helps. But it's because I know him so well that I can tell when it's his footsteps. You know, when it gets to kind of 5.30 p.m. and me, me and Remy, we are flagging. We are flagging and we play a game called Daddy or Not Daddy. Um, and I've not been wrong yet. <laughs> I didn't say it was a good game, but, you know, we really run, we run out of things by 5.30. We're at a low point. Um, but that kind of intimacy, it comes with time. And it's the, same, it's the same with God, obviously. You know, to get to know him, to be captivated by him, it takes intentionally setting apart space to cultivate that relationship, to cultivate that closeness. And I can't think of a better way to step into this new year, embracing it as an opportunity to raise our faith, grow in our love for other people, pointing them to Jesus, and drawing closer to the one who made us. And on that note... I would love to pray.